Sorry. Planning, I'll tell you. <laughs> they, I'll tell you, the key is the olders. It's not. It's not two Viewpoint on five. Viewpoint with attorney like and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now, with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. He's been predicting stormy weather for thirty-three years. He's a weatherman, a weatherman in Michigan, and he just signed off last week after being fired for refusing to take the COVID nineteen vaccine. He was very sad, grateful that he had had 33 years to be able to practice his meteorological trade, but he said a cloud has fallen over the land of the free. The abrogation of our liberty and freedom, he said, under the guise of a pandemic is very disturbing to me. Hopefully, whether you lean right or left, you're concerned about what has occurred over the last year and a half. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804-754-1988. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. With over 30,000 occupations currently in existence, workers today around the world and in the United States have an enormous array of careers from which to choose and upon which to set their lives. But it seems that the pandemic and other things going on in our culture have caused something of an awakening and that millions are realizing that there's more to life than a paycheck, where families working together was once commonplace since the Industrial Revolution. Work has driven a wedge between families, and staying together and building something that will last requires a radically different approach. Well, our guest today is going to help us get a peek at that radically radically different approach. And uh, he is uh, formerly a software engineer designing uh, software packages and programs. He spent 20 years as a programmer building such software. And today, well, he's engaged in some other endeavors. And we want to hear what he has to say about these other endeavors. But before we get to that, he says in his new book that we're engaged in a time in which the robots are taking over. The robots are taking over. You have probably heard about that. Some of you may have already experienced your replacement, your obsolescence seemingly in the workplace, replaced by robots. Wow. Is there any hope for humanity? Where is this place where God honored genuine work and work was originally seen as a form of worship? but the robots are coming. How are we going to respond? How are you going to respond? How are you going to respond when economic factors begin to turn so sour in the country and in the world that work as we have known it may seem slim pickings? Today on Viewpoint, our special guest, Roy Groves, joining us from southern Minnesota with his book, Durable Trades, 
family-centered economies that have stood the test of time. Rory, it is so good to have you on the program. I, As I got into your book, uh, absolutely fascinating. You're a great writer. You're a great researcher. But also you have insight that is tantamount almost to a prophetic viewpoint for such a time as this. So thanks so much for joining us here on Viewpoint today. Chuck, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really honored to be here. Well, as we set the foundation in a little uh, tete-a-tete together concerning your children, uh, you have five children ranging from 2 to 11 years of age, and you actually said that this is not a uh, such a great problem as it might be for so many uh, families, even Christian families, but that actually now that your oldest have moved into the 10, 11-year-old range, they actually are part of your family work endeavor. That makes a whole lot of difference, doesn't it? Yeah, I explained it to someone one time who was a little shell-shocked that we had five kids, which to us, um, you know, we're just learning as we go here, and we're, we're, we're trying a lot of things that our great-grandparents took for granted. Mm-hmm. But I was explaining it once to someone, and they said, wow, how, how in the world are you managing five kids? You know, we've got, you know, one kid or two kids, and it's so difficult. And we kind of explained it in the sense that, well, the older kids are actually uh, contributors. I mean, they're net contributors now. We really rely on them to do a lot of things around the farm and a lot of things, even helping out with the child care. And so he said, oh, okay, so it's not like it's two on five. It's more like it's four on three. He said, exactly. Mm. And so we have our older kids. They're being trained up to take over the things that mom and dad used to do, everything, you know, cleaning the house, changing diapers, doing the farm chores. As they get older, they're getting more responsibility, and they're Mm -hmm. an integral part of our family economy. It's interesting because this idea of a family economy uh, has uh, uh, lost its attractiveness over the past uh, 60, 70 years uh, through the, uh, shall we say, extreme expression of the Industrial Revolution and then uh, the information age and all of that. But what we're watching is families, uh, I'm thinking right now of three families in particular, a family in which uh, a plumber uh, has invested and trained up his sons uh, to work with him, and now they're actually, because uh, of certain injuries that he's had, they're actually taking over the business at a young age. And then again, I'm thinking of two others where they have, uh, I think each of them has at least nine children. And uh, they're not involved in businesses that would make them wealthy to support nine children. On the other hand, they are prospering as families in a more agrarian kind of situation. And we've been watching them over the years. Uh, This seems to be a growing attractiveness, at least to uh, a a remnant of the people out there. Mm -hmm. I think remnant is a good way to put it. There's you know, you can look at your work and your career through a couple of different lenses. One of those, which we have been looking at it through for about 150 years, is how much money can I make? And then I'll, I'll go here and, and earn this money in this specialized vocation, and then I'll use the money to get the things that we want for our families. There's another perspective that was standard uh, before the Industrial Revolution, before the massive amounts of automation and specialization. And um, that one 
that view goes all the way back to Adam. And that was, frankly, um, what is this work that we are to do together as a family? What, mm-hmm. In other words, what has God called us? What's unique in the world that we are supposed to take charge of together? And so work was something that was not merely a paycheck that you would convert your labor in, into uh, money, but it was a form of subsistence, and your family existed to work together. Actually, that's where the term economy comes from. Uh, the Greek word oikonomos means household law or household uh, uh, or family law. And the whole concept of the word economy derives from this uh, function of families who were able to basically be their own self-sustaining communities. They produced what they needed. They lived together. They recreated together. Um, they were you know, meaningful contributors, and they were very autonomous and independent on their farms and in, in whatever ways that they could produce. But it wasn't really until we started to break down the family and separate the family into factories that we started to see this pursuit of efficiency take precedence over the relationships. And that's kind of where we've come today. It's interesting because you've ter- used this term, the unrevolution, in response to the Industrial Revolution and its effects. And, and you say people from all walks of life, political persuasions, and faiths are desiring a more stable, more meaningful, more connected way to live than industrial efficiency has delivered. Perhaps yeah. we will see a return to durable trades as well. And I guess that's why you call your book Durable Trades. We're going to take a look at some of these durable trades, how many of them there are, and why they are durable rather than uh, ephemeral as so many trades are become today, living in a world of obsolescence. We'll be right back, friends. Stay tuned. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Why is it that families have become so fractured over the past 75 to 100 years in America, and increasingly so as the Industrial Revolution carried on into the information age and now the technological age? It just seems there's no end to the waning of work as we have known it and the repositioning, the rethinking, and the more things are rethought and moving around Uh, into the realm of obsolescence and the realm of robots coming to replace human beings, it seems that something even more serious has been replaced in our lives. Our guest today says that the falling away of faith and family in our country is directly related to the effects of the Industrial Revolution and then its uh, corresponding echoing effects through the information age, the technological age, and so on. His name is Rory Groves. He has a book called Durable Trades, Family-Centered Economies That Have Stood the Test of Time. And I want to make the book available to you because I believe that there are a number of listeners here today 
that are, well, their, their hearts and their minds are stirred by this issue. They've been struggling in their own minds and hearts and their families, wondering what do we do? Looking at what's happening in our world, look at the degeneration of things, look at the unstable uh, instability of economies and so on. What are we going to do? Well, perhaps this will help you catch a vision. Durable Trades, your gift of $21, will put this fascinating book in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. You're writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. And uh, we're facing challenges ahead. Uh, Rory, you talk about uh, the challenges of what you call complexity and specialization. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, that was uh, that comes from a uh, sociologist, historian, Joseph Painter, who predicted basically the collapse of civilization uh, based on the level of complexity it attained. And in other words, he describes how all civilizations over time become more complex as they try to solve problems. Do you think that this and, might be at the root of why uh, more than 50% of kids seem to be on such... Uh, uh, drugs as Ritalin and uh, anxiety-reducing drugs and so on? Well, I think the complexity possibly, I think it's a. It's certainly a symptom. I think the cause goes back to um, taking human beings out of the capacities that they were designed to live and operate mm. in, putting them into factories and bolting them to chairs. And, you know, you used to have kids doing shop class and doing a lot more time outside, mm-hmm. a lot more things integrated with their families. There were a lot more mentors in the community, uh, men and women who could mentor uh, uh, good values and culture to the younger children. Um, those are gone. Everyone's separate into their own specialty of work today. And you know, it's interesting kind of that you what... should mention that because uh, as a lawyer, uh, I had the opportunity because... Uh, in the field of law, like all other fields, uh, they were moving into areas of specialization. And uh, everybody was clamoring to get into this specialty, that specialty, the other specialty, and I resisted it. I did not want to get into the world of what I called high-rise specialization that actually separated you from real people in their real lives. So I devoted my entire 20-year career uh, to... Uh, being involved with real people, uh, where they lived, the average run-of-the-mill person not trying to get into this high-rise mentality of hyper-specialization, which separates you from others, doesn't it? It's exactly right. And, and that's what you find time and time again. The more you increase in specialization, the more it disrupts the natural relationships, the human relationships that we have always engaged in, you know, when I say always, I mean, prior to this arrangement of economics where we're focused on constantly improving efficiency. And it's much more efficient to have uh, someone behind a computer screen or even multiple layers of people behind multiple computer screens um, than actually having people working together in the same space, in the same room. You, You do lose efficiency, but see what you make up for that is depth of relationship. And it's really relationships is where the meaning in life comes from. 
Well, and and you point out that the relationships that are disrupted are not just the relationships in the family or the extended relationships in the community, but also our relationship with God himself. Absolutely. I mean, and, it, and I would also extend that to the land, to create God's creation. We become so distant from um, just the practical, everyday kinds of truths that you see in his world, in his natural world. Um, I think about when, when I'm out here on the farm and we're doing, you know, <laughs> whether it's uh, separating sheep from goats, right, or weeding the garden and sowing seed, there are literally countless opportunities to witness biblical examples right in front of your eyes mm-hmm. all the time in an agricultural setting. And so when you're disconnected from that, you're missing some of the deeper truths there that God is trying to communicate through his creation. Are you suggesting that everybody should become a farmer? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in one way or another, and actually I, I found interesting in your book uh, that you say, well, uh, those throughout history that have usually had two involvements in their life. They had the farming aspect, and then they had another aspect, and they worked in tandem. Yeah, and sometimes they would have three or four uh, aspects. You look at, say, Benjamin Franklin, right? He was a renowned statesman, but he was also a writer and a publisher. He was an inventor, so he was a scientist. He was pinning down quite a lot of different trades and many of those trades that are in my book. Um, so he was an example. We have, say, George Washington use another example. He was an orchardist, so he was a, a gardener in a way, mm-hmm. um, be- before he was a military general and before he was a statesman. So there, that's pretty common throughout uh, history to find people engaged in multiple trades, um, and that one of the things about it is that they weren't all eggs in one basket, so to speak. The farming that they would do was usually for subsistence. They right. usually weren't growing crops for cash back then. I mean, there maybe were some, some of that went to cash, but mostly they were growing what they needed for themselves. And when you're talking about that proposition, you don't need uh, 8,000 acres to grow enough food to feed your family, right? You just need a little bit of knowledge in a diverse market garden. And then you can you can grow what you need um, uh, if you have enough hands on deck. You can grow a lot of what you need right on the land, and that's what people just did for thousands of years. Well, it's interesting uh, also, uh, Rory, because uh, what we're seeing, what my wife and I are hearing just in the past, uh, say, three months, is a growing cry among at least a remnant of people out there, particularly Christians who are saying, you know what, we see the sign, we, we see the handwriting on the wall. We yeah. see that uh, the economy as we have known it uh, may not be durable, may not be mm-hmm. lasting uh, with government control and other things coming upon. Uh, perhaps we should be looking at some more fundamental ways that we can sustain our families, that we can uh, accomplish what needs to be done uh, for a living, uh, and also the making of a life. The problem that we're finding is that we're so far removed from those practices that even the most fundamentals of being able to do them don't seem to be available. 
That's exactly right. I mean, we have lost the link in the chain that has been passed on for every generation since Adam and Eve of how to live on the land. It's a critical human skill set that we essentially have lost here in the 20th century, now going into the 21st. And so there are many people, and this isn't a new sudden thing just this year, this has been happening for the last number of decades, Mm -hmm. that have been reading the writing on the wall. They have been taking steps towards becoming more self-reliant and self-sufficient. They've been going back and learning what their great-grandparents did in order to try to continue to subsist in some way, even if it's a, 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 you know just a moderate amount. Maybe you're just growing a little bit of food, but at least you're keeping the skill set alive. And that really is an important facet in all of this, I think, is to keep the knowledge alive so to pass on the sacred fire, so to speak. In the uh, mid to to uh, latter part of the 1970s, my wife and I uh, began to see that this same kind of spirit uh, was seriously undermining education. And our daughters at that time were young, and uh, we decided that we were going to take a leap and explore the idea of homeschooling. There were two or three other families in our sphere uh, that uh, had been seeing the same thing and decided to make that leap. Unfortunately, though, at that time, homeschooling was seen as so aberrant in the society that it was uh, deemed a virtual crime. And uh, people were even being challenged by the courts. Uh, of course, the uh, educational system and associations weren't happy about it. Uh, but now... Uh, there are millions of homeschoolers out there, and I believe that you stated accurately that home education is legal in all 50 states. There are certain things that you need to do, but uh, it's legal in all 50 states. Uh, why is this uh, surging like this? Is this the same pattern that you're following with regard to the economic aspects? Yeah, I think that absolutely it is the same pattern. I think people are recognizing that the factory system applied to education just isn't producing the results that they hoped that it would. And most certainly for Christian parents who want to raise their children in the faith, the schools are working uh, diametrically opposed in many instances to what they're trying to pass on. Yeah, with intentionality, so, I might indicate. Intentionally, yeah. And so, I mean, I think there's there's a number of different factors uh, underpinning this, um, but that is that is a key one, is if parents wanting to pass on their primary duty to pass on their faith to their children. And in order to do that, you need to be the one in charge of their education. You know, I mean, the... the um, Scripture makes it clear that in the end, the student will be like his teacher. And so there, there is a facet there of taking more direct control over the aspects of one's life and one's family, uh, not relying on big institutions or big government to do things for you that you can do for yourself. Well, government doesn't make a very good father nor a very good God, does it? Mm, amen. Okay. How do we define durable then? Your book is called Durable Trades. Uh, What is durable? Is there anything durable? (laughs) Yes, there is. I mean, so for the purposes of writing this book, what I did is I came up with a set of criteria that would qualify something as durable to be included. Because 
the question that I was just answering, wanting to answer for my own family, coming from a career in high technology is I was just tired of everything going obsolete all the time. Mm -hmm. And so my question was, do I want to spend another 20 years engineering obsolescence or can I start working towards something that's going to last, you know, something that could even be an inheritance to my children. So uh, what I did is I looked at trades that existed before the industrial revolution, because that really was the greatest, rearrangement of society in modern times. And if if something with the thought that something could have withstood the industrial revolution, it probably can withstand just about everything else, you know, with wars and um, social unrest and currency devaluation. I mean, just about everything that we're seeing today, pandemics, these are trades that have survived all of the things that we've seen for hundreds of years. So I set I set essentially a, a time uh, span of it had to be around before the founding of our country. So by 1790 was the cutoff. That's kind of the start of the Industrial Revolution. Mm. And then um, right when our Constitution still, was uh, was confirmed. that's right uh-huh. when it was yeah the, exactly when the, when the United States was officially uh, the Constitution was ratified 1789. So around that time. If the trade existed then and still is around today, and it's still a viable option today, that's what made it in the book. So we want to take a look at what some of those are and why it is you've selected them. And uh, it's fascinating. It really is fascinating, some of the choices that you've made here. I think people are going to be a little surprised as we go into this. But friends, this book may be just what you've been looking for, at least to spark a further... A little, a small little fire in your life because you knew that something was wrong and you wanted to give a handle on it. Durable Trades, it's on our website, saveus.org. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a For Pastors Only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. Also on Chuck's website, listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast. Listen to the archives. Maybe you missed a program. Check it out at saveus.org. Also, there are some great resources, hospitality information, also information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, newsletters, articles, prophecy, prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org. What types of businesses and work have been least affected by extractors throughout history? What trades have endured for centuries and still exist today? Trades that are more family-centric. What trades are overly dependent on brittle systems that are therefore not likely to withstand economic, societal, or technological upheaval? That's what we want to take a look at in the balance of our program here today on Viewpoint. The most successful family economies over history involved a mix of trades rather than just one, says our guest Rory Groves in his book Durable Trades, family-centered economies that have stood the test of time. 
Again, you can avail yourself of this right there on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA, or you can write to us at Save America Ministries. P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. My latest book, Antichrist, was published duly by the company that we formed years ago, Elijah Books, and Carpenter's Son Publishing. Carpenter's Son Publishing. Does that ring a bell, my friends? Carpenter's Son Publishing? This is a season in which we're remembering the birth of one who was to become the savior of the world, and yet it says he was born of a carpenter's son. Well, he was raised by a carpenter's son, a carpenter, and he became a carpenter's son. Some question whether he was actually a carpenter. Some think that actually a carpenter in those days was actually a combination of somebody that would work with wood and stone because stones were so plentiful in Israel. So apparently Jesus, the Lord of the church, the Savior of the world, got his start on this planet working with his hands with his daddy. Hmm. An awful lot of that has escaped us these days, it seems. So how are we going to find work? How are we going to find enduring trades that have stood the test of time that we can embrace once again for the benefit of our families and even our spiritual lives? That's where we're looking here in the balance of the program here today with our guest, Rory Groves. Rory, what is a durable trade? Again, you have laid out, what, four, five questions, six questions here. Historical stability, that's 20% of the, your total score. Resiliency, 15% of the score. Family-centeredness, 35% of your score. Income, 20% of the score. Ease of entry, 10% of the score. Uh, those are your five criteria, aren't they? That's right. Yeah, I when I was doing the research on the book, I didn't want to just talk about these trades. Because as I said, I was this was a personal quest for our family. Sure. I knew the direction that we were going wasn't working, and I wanted to switch gears. I wanted to involve my family in what I was doing. And so I was interested in not only what survived for the last couple of centuries, uh, but what was the most durable and what was the most family-centered. And so I ended up coming up with uh, a number of different questions and categories that I ranked all of the trades in the book. There's a total of 61 trades that made the cut. Hmm. And then I rank them top to bottom. And I use these different things like historical stability, which explains, for example, how much has that trade changed, right? So you can think of farming today with all the mechanization and the massive harvesters and the petrochemicals, it's a very different profession than it was uh, 200 years ago. Very different. Well, However, indeed, indeed, these are rooted deeply in uh, the Gospels. Uh, in fact, sure. if we yep. look at the uh, 
the story, the remembrance of the birth of Christ and all that came there, we knew that there were shepherds abiding in the fields, taking care of their flocks by night. And number one in your book is shepherd. Uh, And that would include a variety of uh, animal husbandry, wouldn't it? That's right. Working with animals, actually, I separate farming from shepherding because Mm -hmm. the actual working with our uh, animals or ranching or livestock farming, as it's also known, uh, it just demands this extra edge of human capability that machines have not been able to replicate yet. And it pushes it a little past uh, the tiebreaker for farmers. Um, in, in other words, this is something that is practiced today, I mean, in many ways, in many places, exactly as it has been since the angels appeared in the sky and announced mm-hmm. Christ's birth. Oh. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing when you start looking at it and thinking about it. I'm thinking right now of several uh, families that we know that have got involved in a modest way in shepherding. Uh, they're taking mm-hmm. care of uh, not big flocks of sheep, but they may have a few sheep. They have a few cows. Uh, they have, uh, you know, a variety of different animals. I'm also thinking of one of the most prominent uh, and successful uh, family ventures on HGTV. Uh, Christians who also, on their own, have their own farm and have their children involved in it. So it has bonded their family together, and they make that plain through their television programs. Absolutely, and that's what happens on the family farm, and that's why this has historically been the way by which families have subsisted for so many thousands of years. Uh, The thing that's unique about these trades, especially the family-centered trades, the ones that we're talking about right now, um, they, um, there are roles for children that are incredibly meaningful. And mm-hmm. when you have kids doing important work, and those kids know that the work they're doing is important, it's not just keeping them busy. They're doing meaningful work, and they're contributing to the family. It builds a confidence and a security in that child that is irreplaceable. They carry that with them wherever they go. It's really, really a great way to start to uh, train up your children, even from the earliest of ages, to have a successful career, no matter what direction they go. Interestingly, Jesus uh, made it very plain that many of his parables and illustrations were focused on the farmer, the agrarian society. Uh, For instance, Mm -hmm. he says in Mark chapter 4, so is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed in the ground, and he should rise uh, night and day, and the seed shall grow up. He doesn't know how, but he knows that it will grow up. And uh, so many of these things, I, I have said many, many times that I believe that every pastor, if he really wants to have the depth and uh, relationship of ministry uh, that would understand viscerally what Jesus was saying, he needs to have his hands in the dirt at least a couple of hours a week. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to tell that to my pastor. <laughs> <laughs> and you can have him call me, and I'll help him to Chuck understand says, what that means. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've noticed that ever since I got started gardening, you know, we've been out here for about 10 years, but before that, I was in a suburb. Uh, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. I lived in the cities. I didn't have any clue how any of this worked. And that was, to me, 
that was one of the fascinating things about working in the garden. You know, I'd say there's a lot of theology in the garden. Absolutely. You're weeding, you know, weeds representing sin. And if you don't get those weeds out when they're little, boy, are they hard to get out later. Well, one of the reasons I think, uh, Rory, why so many people, so many Christians, even their pastors, don't quite understand how to live uh, a righteous life is because they do not understand uh, the relationship between gardening uh, and the garden of our lives. Uh, you just can't allow the weeds to grow up and uh, expect to have a beautiful garden. You can't have the weeds grow up in your marriage and expect to have a beautiful marriage garden. Uh, these exactly. things are, the, the transferable concepts are so immense, and we've missed mm-hmm. them for decades you know, it, that's a really key point that you hit on, because when you are actually in the pattern, uh, you, you begin to change the way you think when you live in an agricultural context, when, when you're working in the garden, like you said. And, and so you interpret the world through that lens. And the Bible, as you said, it was written from an agricultural perspective, because that, those are the times in which they lived. And those are the times which everyone lived up until very recently. I've actually trained and, up and discipled three of my oldest grandsons uh, to understand and do those things. And they have learned so much about hmm. the kingdom of God and about uh, uh, faithfulness and about how to live a life and and uh, get rid of the weeds and so on. Uh, it, it's just irreplaceable. Now you talk about uh, things like uh, the carpenter, uh, the wood woodworker. What's the difference? A, a carpenter is generally involved in rough construction, and uh, so they're they're doing things like framing houses or building structures. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a woodworker is involved with very fine craftsmanship. They're making furniture. They're making cabinets. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're doing fine engraving, and they maybe will come into a house after the, it's built and, and install the furniture or the furnishing. Yeah. Well, you talk about, uh, among others, and there's no way we can get to all of these, you say a butcher is mm-hmm. one of these enduring trades. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And in fact, butchering is one of the trades that's been on an increase in about the last uh, 15 to 20 years. You're not there talking. A, you're not talking about uh, political butchering, are you? Well, no. I, I'm I'm still back in the agriculture garden here. So, literally, local butchers are in high demand. We have uh, hogs that we bring in every year. We raise uh, one, usually one for ourselves, and then we raise a couple to sell to friends or neighbors. And um, we have to wait, or we have to get on the waiting list a year in advance. There's so much demand right now, hmm. and there's just not enough butchers. Isn't and that so, amazing? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that there's been a lot of increased demand, and this is coming from the desire for local food and uh, uh, organic and healthier food. That's hmm. where this demand is coming from. All right, we're going to be back with our guest Rory uh, Rory Groves in just a few moments. Durable trades. We're just barely scratching the surface, friends. He has over 60 of these in his book. And you're going to be shocked at some of those that he has and just might catch your attention. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? 
Many people are developing a heart longing for greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by His Spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, Behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Always, always, always a delight to come before you here to talk about the things that matter. We're confronting the deepest issues of America's heart and home from God's eternal perspective. And I believe we're doing that, yes, even today. I grew up in the church. My father was a pastor. Uh, However, uh, he was involved in small congregations. Sometimes they were startup churches. They were home mission churches. And so it was needful for him to work uh, doing other jobs on the side. And uh, I never disrespected him for that. It never dawned on me to disrespect him for that, but that's what he did. It wasn't until the late 1970s that we began to see the growth of the megachurch movement. And the megachurch movement expanded with the church growth movement. And then in the 1990s with the seeker-sensitive movement, and now uh, most recently in the 2000s with the emerging church movement, and with each successive iteration both the family and the church and its allegiance and commitment to one another has broken down. My wife and I were involved uh, as volunteer pastors in one of the fastest growing churches in Southern California, uh, going back about 40 years ago before we came to Richmond, Virginia. And the Lord began to speak to my heart about the necessity for these times, these unique times of shifting away from the go-to-church mentality of churchianity and to begin to refocus on the home. And so 26 years ago, we began a house church. That house church continues to this very day. We have raised whole families in that house church. It has been an amazing journey. But I think that that actually goes hand in hand with the spirit of what our guest today is talking about with his durable trades. Family-centered economies that have stood the test of time. And believe it or not, the church didn't even make it into big buildings or or, uh, uh, cathedrals until until the church became an institution about 300 years after Christ was on this planet. What does that say about our times if we believe that Christ is on his way back? What do you think, Rory? 
Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of just mulling over everything you shared. It's a fascinating uh, introspection into your own house church movement. I've certainly sensed the same kind of desire to see our churches reflect more of the body uh, in being the church rather than going to the church. That's certainly the heart cry. And I, I think some of the things we've seen in the last year and a half, um, in the same way that it's caused people to rethink their priority of work. I mm-hmm. think it's causing them to rethink what kind of church community are they looking for? Or what kind of community are they looking for in general? Exactly. Are there things out there where we can meet, you know, where it's not 90 minutes once a week, but we're actually investing in each other's lives? That is part and parcel with what I'm talking about with the family-centered economy, because yeah. what you used to have were families who were working together alongside other families. I mean, just look at the pilgrims who came over. There is a church that was living together and working together in order to survive. And they started, they were the seeds of a new nation. They had no idea what they were starting. But they were devoted to each other. And out of that, Christ raised up a generation of people who changed the world. Yeah. There are societal governmental and economic pressures that are increasingly coming to bear to perhaps compel believers back into the homes. And uh, that is one of the reasons why we decided to remain faithful to that particular calling, even though by this time we probably could have had a congregation of a thousand or more people. Uh, Hmm. But we decided, no, that isn't really what... Uh, God is calling us to because there's going to come a time when we need to get back to the simplicity of the faith in relationship with one another and families. Okay, now you have 60-some trades, durable trades. One of those is a teacher, but you call them a tutor. Yeah. What's the difference? Well, in fact, the teaching trade uh, makes multiple appearances in the list, um, but the one that's called tutor is more of like an informal uh, teaching. It's not someone who's teaching in a school necessarily mm-hmm. or in a college. Right. A tutor is someone who's giving some kind of informal instruction. So this might be a craft person who is teaching another craft person their skill. This might be a, a workshop where they're hosting workshops uh, this could be um, someone who is um, uh, maybe teaching a sport, for example. How about like a piano teacher? Things like that, or a piano teacher, or an art teacher. Mm-hmm. So it's all. If you think, if you step back and think about it, yeah, there's a lot of education going on that is not part of the government program. It's just, it's just kind of at will education that people mm-hmm. engage with all the time. So that type of a profession really does go back a long way. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Jesus himself was a teacher, and he had 12 that he yeah. raised up uh, to go with him, and that's how he, how he lived and communicated uh, the gospel. Going back into the earlier days of our country, uh, when people would travel around, whether it was George Washington or uh, any of the others that we think are famous, uh, they had to stop in different places as they would travel on horseback 
and uh, they would stop in inns. Uh, sometimes they went by other names, taverns or whatever, but they were really inns. Uh, and you list innkeeper as one of these trades. And what I've discovered over the past 40, 50 years is there's a growing propensity for people to desire to start B&Bs, bed and totally, breakfasts. Yeah. Definitely. It's huge. It's surging probably like no other time in the last couple hundred years right now with Airbnbs and BRBOs mm-hmm. and people putting, um, even putting campers on their farm properties and renting those out. There's a <laughs> lot of people getting into hospitality right now. Sure. And so it's, it's a surging trade. It's definitely in fashion. And, and then, of course, there are things like uh, miners and fishermen and uh, uh, farriers uh, These are and roofers. These are things that are enduring, plasterers, uh, mm-hmm. and, and it doesn't take, in order to get into these, you have to basically be trained and mentored in order to do them, don't you? Yeah, that's right. You know, the apprenticeship model is how young people were trained into the trades, I mean, all the way back. Um, it, it's only very recently that we've switched over into this college model um, where you're not trained by the actual professional, you're, mm-hmm. you're trained by um, a, a, a different kind of professional. And That's even lawyers, even yeah. lawyers were not trained in uh, law schools. They were trained by other lawyers. Correct. Mentoring. That was the typical way. Yep, mentoring. And, that, and I go into that too. And that, that was the way that we passed on these skills and these trades for so many generations. And I think that is a real uh, problem that we have on our hands today. As soon as we separate morality out from education, now we've got a big problem on our hands because now we don't know how to apply integrity to the trade in which you're entering. Exactly. And we don't apply integrity. We demean some of these things, and yet they're absolutely essential. And what we're finding is, uh, for instance, that as – the trades are demeaned, and we, our government uh, unwisely tends to fund people for doing nothing. We're finding that it's made tradesmen less available, and we can't even gain, gain on with production. We can't even gain on with uh, uh, building houses and the things that need to be done. Absolutely, that's right. And, and when I interviewed people for the book, that I was running into that uh, consideration constantly years ago uh, where there were already shortages. They were the common cry of the tradesmen is that there aren't any young people coming up to take these jobs. Mm-hmm. Everyone else, it, it, most of the people are uh, older that are working in the trade, 50, 60 years old. They're getting ready to retire and no one's yeah. coming to replace them. And we've, and it we, was already stretched thin. What, what's happened is we've preached a doctrine that college is the way to salvation. college is the way to economic salvation. And what we're discovering is that nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, college may actually be diminishing your opportunities to find a durable trade. You know, I, and I mentioned that I go into that in the book as well, but there's um, over the next decade, a study had been done and they say that the building trades are projected to increase at I believe it was 30%, which is faster than every other sector of the economy. And at this, over the same period, white 
white-collar jobs are expected to decrease by about 10%. Mm. So here you have the college-degreed professions actually getting cut because they're going into automation. You know, mm -hmm. computer algorithms are getting better. But you have the custom kind of work that building, uh, the building tradesmen are doing that can only be done by humans. Those are just continuing to increase in demand. Well, indeed, uh, for the past uh, 30 years, there's been a flood of lawyers. <clears throat> Law schools were filled, and they, uh, lawyers couldn't find a place to work. And uh, it became increasingly frustrating. Uh, we have people who have trained in other kinds of areas in colleges and universities that can't find jobs. Uh, they're right. trained in things that uh, are not durable, uh, things that uh, are being flooded and uh, it's, it's just not viable. I have uh, 10 grandchildren, and uh, I'll tell you, Rory, uh, we've encountered this problem with them. Uh, they're exploring. Okay, mm. in this kind of world, in this kind of economy, what is the value for me going to college? What am I going to get when I come out? What kind of work do I really want to do? What am I attracted to doing? And so these questions now are being echoing, they're, they're echoing uh, through our grandparent relationships with these kids. Now what do I do? Where do I go? What do I really enjoy doing? And does it really require a college education? And quite frankly, should I go into debt for thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars to get that education when in fact obsolescence is carrying away its value. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I can't tell you the number of people that have sat in our living room telling us how much they wish they could move into a house or they wish they could uh, move out to the country and buy a farm, but they're completely stuck because they have college debt that is just burdening them. And mm. they've been paying it off for years. They want to move on to the next stage of life. Uh, they figured out after they graduated that that profession actually wasn't a good fit for them. And now they're stuck. They've got the debt and they don't have a way to advance in where they really feel like they want to be. So it, it is not uh, the panacea that it was made out to be for the last many decades. It's not for everyone and it never was meant to be for everyone. College is for specific purposes. It's yeah. not a general application kind of a education. And so, um, yeah, a lot of people are asking those same questions right now, and they're looking around for other options. All right. So as we approach here the, the end of our conversation, uh, what would you say to parents and grandparents that are listening out there and they say, you know what, uh, this is really touching? Real, real succinctly, what would you say in 30 seconds? Well, I would encourage every parent or grandparent of young people right now to explore the trades with their children. And I don't mean just the trades that are manual building labor trades. Uh, 